0: And take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and as you make your way there, I want to say thanks to Caleb for leading us in worship through song this morning. I was talking with him, and he has a midterm on Matthew coming up, so if you'll pray for him. But also, this would be a great time to ask him any questions you have about Matthew. Uh, he's, he's taking class with Dr. Quarles, who wrote a great commentary, several great books on Matthew. So. Uh, he'll, be af- he'll be here after the service. You bring him your questions. <laughs> uh, thank you, Caleb. We appreciate it. We're, it's a joy every time you're here, so thank you. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we want to finish chapter 12 this morning and look at verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. This is the conclusion of a section that really began in verse 22. But Jesus has been teaching. In verse 46, it says that while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Verse 48, he replied to the one who was speaking to him, He said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Have you ever seen the videos or read a news story of a person who was incarcerated and they were innocent and they served months, maybe years? Decades, even, and they finally receive that uh, innocent judgment. They're they're set free, and and it's known that finally that justice is being served, and this person is being set free. And there's this great rejoicing, and there's tears, and and, and we read that and we say, "Thank God uh, that justice was finally done." And, and you read the news stories, and it's such a great reminder of how sometimes. The, the beautiful picture of our salvation that that in Christ we are declared innocent and righteous and we're set free, all the things we sang about. But you know what never happens in those news stories? You never see the person that was in prison go to live with the judge. You never see that person join the lawyer's family, start showing up for Christmas, start asking for... Money, start asking, you never see them joining a family. But there's also something else that never happens. there's, There's usually some compensation, financial compensation, a material blessing that happens. So not only are they set free, but they're filled up. They're given something. They are invested. But you never see the former prisoner going home with the banker. You never see him going to live with the state. So we have these metaphors in Scripture, and we have these pictures that, that help us understand our salvation, that when we're justified, we, we talk about court language. We are, we are before the judge, and we're declared innocent because of Christ, right? That's justification. And we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. When we trust Christ, God declares us righteous because of Christ. So not only are we declared innocent and, and our sin is, has removed, we're forgiven, but remember we talked about being credited righteousness. So then we enter the world of finance where we have an account that we're forgiven our debt, but our balance is at zero. And so we need something credited to our account. And when we trust Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed. It's deposited into our account. So we have, we have judicial metaphors. We have financial metaphors. But have you ever stopped and asked the question to what end? to what end what is the end game I'm afraid a lot of times when we talk about justification and imputation these big words and these big concepts these metaphors sometimes we, we so emphasize them that we forget the other pictures that the scriptures use now I'm not saying we don't talk about justification I think that's a word you need to understand. It's a big word, but you need to understand. I think we need to talk about imputation. That's a big word, but it's, an, it's a big word for a big reason. But why does God seek to justify us? Why does God impute to us righteousness that is not ours, that comes outside of us, and that was so costly that it cost Jesus his own life? Why? Why? Well, when we come to our passage this morning, there's actually one more metaphor, one more picture, and really it shows us the end game. When we look at our text, it might surprise us to find that the answer to the question, why, is answered with language that it's not war language. God doesn't justify us and and credit us righteousness so that we become soldiers. It's not political language. He doesn't justify us and give us righteousness so that we might become political activists. What is the language that we find in verses 46 through 50? It's the language of family. God justifies and God imputes because God is saving His children. God is making His family. So what we've been talking about the past few weeks matters. Not just for theoretical precision. Not just for theological precision. It matters because God is building His family. He is making His people. And the way He's doing it is through justifying and imputing He's reconciling his elect people to be a part of his family. And so if we want to use theological language, we've talked about justification. We've talked about imputation. This morning we're talking about the great and glorious doctrine of adoption. That God is saving his sons and daughters. So the language we find is the language of adoption. And, it's in, and we see the importance that Jesus places on this because he talks about a new family and he contrasts it with his natural family. Look at verse 46. He's still speaking and his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And this is a big deal because someone actually interrupts Jesus. You ever been interrupted, right? Sometimes it's worth it. It's something that this needs to interrupt what I'm doing right now, but have you ever been interrupted by something that really could wait? Right? But it's important enough in this culture that someone goes up to Jesus in the middle. I mean, just think about how Jesus is just talking about how a, a demon that is cast out can come back. That's kind of important stuff to talk about. He's talking about, you know, if you don't repent and believe like, Like we see with the Ninevites and with the Queen of the South, you know, it's going to be bad for you. I think anybody with any sense of decorum would understand there are some things that maybe we should wait till Jesus finishes, right? Like this is a question that could be, but instead someone, look at the way it's described in the language, while he's still speaking, Jesus is in the middle of teaching and someone says, Hey! Your mom and your brothers want to talk to you. Now, what is, what is going on here? Well, in this culture and in this day and age, family was important. Family was something that took precedence almost everything else. So much so that the implication and the understanding here is the person is saying, Hey, Jesus, we all understand you need to stop what you're doing right now And go see what they want. That's the expectation. The family was on that high of a level. That Jesus should stop what he's doing. And go see what they want. But Jesus uses this expectation to teach a lesson. Because he contrasts his natural family with his true family. So it may not seem like a big deal. But it is. Because this family union is an authoritative body. And yet Jesus uses this to teach us. Look at what he says. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, Jesus is not asking a question that he does not know the answer to. He's not saying, uh, tell me their names again. I don't know who they are. But he's asking A question to elicit the point: Who, who is, who actually is my brother? Brother, let's stop. You're saying my mother and brothers want to speak to me, but who actually is my mother and brothers? And then notice how it describes in verse forty-nine: He stretches out his hands towards his disciples, so his disciples are there listening, and he points to them. So mom and brothers are outside in the back. Now just imagine that, right? If I was in the middle of preaching. My mom and my sister were standing out in the back, and they're waving like, We need to speak to you. We're we're your mom and your siblings. We need to talk to you. And I said, This is my brother, right? You can see how that would be taken the wrong way. Somebody might say, You shouldn't treat your parents like that. You shouldn't treat your family like that. But that's what Jesus does. He says, This is my brother, and these are my mothers. How can he say that? Well, he gives us the reason in verse 50. He says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is preaching, he's teaching on the kingdom. And and he's he's illustrating a very important point that, that the work of the kingdom, the work that Jesus is doing, the kingdom work by the Spirit takes precedence and priority over any and all other bonds. Such that now his brothers and sisters and mothers are not the ones that he is naturally related to, but the ones who do the will of the Father in heaven. And so, what we've seen in this chapter, really this section, from from verse 22 on, where Jesus has endured and, and experienced opposition, and there were a variety of ways in which Jesus was opposed. And Matthew has made it clear that the Lord faced this opposition and hostility from people who ought to have been welcoming him. The Pharisees ought to have welcomed him. And his family ought to have welcomed him. And it seems that not even his family understood exactly what it is he was supposed to do. But then Jesus ends with this reminder and Matthew ends with this reminder that there were those, despite all the opposition, who committed themselves to Jesus who were willing to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, these are his family. His disciples are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. They are his family. Now, this language of doing the will of the Father, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the same language that Matthew uses in Matthew 7, 21. And if you remember that passage, that's the passage where Jesus says, Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? But Jesus says, the one who enters is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so the logical question, if Jesus is saying the one who does the will of the Father is the one who enters the kingdom and the one who is Christ's family, the question is, what is the will of the Father in heaven? What is it Jesus is having us to do? Well, we've been talking about that for the past three or four weeks. The whole point that Jesus is driving home is that we have to respond rightly to the work of God in Jesus Christ. And when we respond rightly, Matthew is saying that not only are we justified, not only are we given to righteousness outside of ourselves, but ultimately in the end we become a part of Christ's true family. Stop and think about that for a moment. When you, the, if you remember nothing else from today, the, the main thing I want you to take away is this: when you respond rightly to Christ, you become a part of Christ's true family. When you respond rightly to Christ, you become a part of God's true family. What is the will of the Father in heaven in this context? I think this is what Jesus is talking about, that we respond rightly. And we've talked about this. How do you respond rightly? Through repentance and faith. You trust Christ, you turn from your sins, trusting in Christ, and you rest in what Christ has done. Now, here we need to back up a little bit and perhaps be reminded of of why we're not a part of his family. The reason we're not a part of his family is because of sin. We're born sinners. We're born outside of the family. We're born with a proclivity to like and enjoy being outside of the family. And we go our own way. We are all like sheep who go astray, like we read about. And we disobey God's law and His word, and we rebel. And so we're outside of the family. We're, we're rebels. We're enemies. And we deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. And so that's why we're not part of the family to begin with. But that's the bad news. The good news is that Christ, and this is what this has all been pointing towards, that Christ is the answer The good news is that Christ never sinned, that Christ never disobeyed God's law, that Christ lived a perfect life, and as a perfect person went to a cross, and because he was perfect, our sins could be laid on him, the blameless, perfect substitute. And he pays the penalty for our sins. He dies in our place. The wrath of God for our sin is poured out on him. And so all of that happens. And what is the call to us? When we hear that good news, what does God want us to do? He says, receive it and rest in it. Trust it. Turn from all your works. Turn from trying to save yourself. Turn from your sin and rest in what I have provided in my son. That's the response that makes us a part of God's family, trusting, resting, receiving, however you want to think about it, believing, trusting Christ. So I hope you've seen the logic as we've gone through this section. We've talked about the justification that God vindicates guilty sinners in His law court and declares them righteous in His sight, then He... There's imputation. He credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account. If we receive that righteousness, we're filled up with that which we do not have. And then last week we talked about new ownership, and we kind of hinted at it, right? But what kind of new ownership is God working within us? You see that we need a new ownership, and God provides that too. But notice, God doesn't make us managers, it's not like a corporate buyout where, where now we have a new CEO. It's not new ownership like a pet. Like we just transfer from... No, it's better than that. The new ownership that we're after, God provides for us. And it's not new ownership in any other way than we receive the new ownership of becoming a part of a new family. You have a new father. Jesus When he's teaching, he tells the Pharisees and the scribes, you are of your father, the devil. When we trust Christ, we receive a new ownership in the sense that we become a part of a new family. We have a new father. We have a new brother in Jesus Christ. We become co-heirs with Jesus. We are bound to them and in them and with them by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, through his work, God takes rebellious sinners and makes them sons and daughters. Like we just sang about, the blood of Jesus shed for us, that pays for our sin, that enables us to be cleansed, brings us into God's family. All you have to do is respond rightly. All you have to do is respond rightly, and you receive a new family, a new ownership. Here's the rub you won't even do that. What you have to understand is that sin so pervades your heart and your will, your desires. That in and of yourself, you wouldn't and you didn't. And apart from a supernatural work of God, you won't. Because the Bible doesn't just talk about us being sinners. It talks about us being dead in our sin. Ephesians 2, 1, right? We were dead in our sins and trespasses, which we once walked according to the way of this world, right? So here's, here's where it starts to get even better. You think that's good that we respond rightly and we become a part of a new family? Well, that's great. Except for the fact that we would never respond rightly unless God did a work in our life. So not only does God open up the way, but even though the way is there, we don't want to go down that way. That way is not attractive to us. And so really the only hope that we have for a new family is not just that the way is opened up, but that God would take us out of a family and put us into His family. There's a difference between someone who you take in, you know, you want to help somebody, you take them in and they kind of become a part of your family. That's not the kind of adoption we're talking about. This is adoption in the sense that their last name is changed to The new family's last name. Do you see what we're getting at here? This adoption only happens if God does a work in our hearts that we would respond rightly. Think of it this way. When you were in your sin before a supernatural work, you want to know how you treated the offer of the gospel and the offer of this new family? You treated it the way you do when you get that voicemail and it's about a car warranty expiring? What do you do? You hang up, you dismiss, you rip it up, you throw it in the trash. But when we think about this, this hope of being a part of God's family, it's, we have to respond rightly, but our only hope of responding rightly is if God does a supernatural work in you. So understand this. The fact, That you as a believer are now a part of God's family and Christ's family is only possible because God has done every single thing necessary for it to happen. So much so that He took you from death to life, He took you from outside the family to inside the family. He took you from being dead in your sins and not having faith to making you alive, giving you faith, calling you. You trust Christ and now you're a part of His family. So when we respond rightly to Christ, we become a part of Christ's true family. And that's such a comforting notion when we realize that, like we said last week, it's not that God makes the way and then we decide that we're in the family or not. That's not how adoption works. Think of it this way. Why is it so important that we get this right? Because if you make adoption about how you get into the family, you'll never have an assurance of your salvation. Ever. Because if you can get yourself in the family, then you can also get yourself out of the family. But here's the thing. Nothing you can do Nothing you could do can change that because you did not make that happen. God adopted you. You did not make yourself a part of His family. He made you a part of His family. So listen to me, believer. There's nothing you could ever do to kick yourself out of God's family. Now, this isn't a license to sin. This isn't, this isn't saying that you can go do your own thing and, and that you can sin so that grace may abound. But no, what it does mean, here's, here's where we have to be very careful. A lot of times we talk about God's unconditional love. And we use it in reference to almost anybody such that God unconditionally loves the whole world. And he does love the world, but not in the same way that he loves his sons and daughters. When we are sons and daughters of God, there is an unconditional love such that we cannot change whether we are sons or daughters. You say, Well, isn't it possible that that someone might want to leave the faith or someone listen? When, when someone has radically understood that they were brought. From out of the family and into the family, and how God did all of that possible. Why would you ever want to leave? So listen to me. What is this doctor? What do we do with this then? Well, think of it this way: It's like when one of my children come to me and they, you know, or they come to mom and they say, "My leg itches," right? Usually, only happens right before bedtime. My leg itches. So what do we do? We go and we get the, the cream and, and we put the, the the cream on the itch and it, it soothes it such that the itch is not there anymore. For some of us, I think we wrestle with the itch of our own assurance. Am I, am I really a part of God's family? Am I really saved? Am I, How can I know that I'm really saved? We look at our past week and and we look at something in our week in particular and we say, surely that's something that ought to get me kicked out of the family. We look at our week and we say, how in the world could I be a part of God's family? Adoption, this, this understanding of adoption is the soothing cream that we apply to our conscience. So how can you leave here this morning with a renewed confidence in your adoption as sons and daughters of God? I want to give you four things to remember. Really, this is just a summary of the section and this this section in general, uh, and this passage. How can you leave here with a renewed confidence in your adoption as a son and daughter of God? Four things to remember. First, remember this section points to your need for Christ. Verses 22 through 50 are really all about demonstrating just how badly we need Jesus. How utterly hopeless we are apart from the work of Jesus. So the first thing you need to remember is this section points to your need for Christ. But second, remember this section points to how Christ meets your need. So this section has taught us just how much we need Jesus, but in doing so, it's also teaching us just how much Jesus has come to meet that need. I love the quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Realize that in Christ, God has done everything to bring you into his family. You have this great need. Christ meets that great need. Thirdly, Remember, this passage shows the end to which God has done the amazing work of salvation. Remember, this passage, this section, shows the end to which God did an amazing work of salvation. It's one thing for God to work in Christ that we would be declared innocent. And it's another thing that God would give us that which we do not deserve. But isn't it possible that, let's just maybe use our imagination. Could God have stopped there? I don't want to get, I'm not trying to wander into heresy. But, but could, have God, could he have stopped there? But he doesn't. It's another thing to to work for our release. It's another thing to fill us up with that which we don't have. But for God to do all of that so that we might be a son or a daughter of His. That we might know Christ and be a part of His true family. So understand this, the ends, not only the ends show just what God has done, but the means, the way that God has done shows how much He loves us if the end of all of it is that he might bring us into the family, that's great and that's glorious. And we say, wow, God loves me. But don't miss the fact of what Jesus had to go through to make that happen. Not only is it the expanse of what Jesus has done, but the depths of what he's done. The only way that this is possible is because Christ willingly let himself be nailed to a cross You say, how can I ever be assured of my adoption that God really wanted me to be a part of His family? Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you. Stand back and be amazed at God laying down His life, sending His Son, and the Son being pierced for your transgressions. Crushed for your iniquities. The chastisement of our sin being laid on him. Not just to set you free. Not just to give you something that you didn't have. But so that he could say that. Think of you. Your name. Jason is my brother. That is my sister. Put your name in the blank. And see how God loves you. So this section points to your need for Christ. It points to how Christ meets that need. And it shows the way in which God and Christ goes about satisfying that need. Fourth thing you need to remember. Because God did everything. What God calls you to is to trust to rest repent and trust in Christ when we respond rightly to Christ through faith and repentance you become a part of God's true family it is such a beautiful assurance to know that not as God not only has God done everything to make us a part of the family but he's done it in such a way that you cannot undo that work. If you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ, you are a part of that family. No misstep, no mistake, nothing that you do can undo that. So leave here with a renewed assurance that it's not up to you to keep your place in the family. It's not up to you to maintain a level of performance such that God doesn't get so dissatisfied with you that he kicks you out of the family. No, go out in boldness and courage and assurance knowing that yes, you're going to mess up. But that's not going to affect the fact that you are a part of his family because you're trusting in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never responded to him by trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins. What you need to know is no matter what you may have heard growing up, if somebody told you at some point in your life we're all God's children, that's not true. Jesus says, let's just be honest, of all the people who might be grandfathered into this whole family, wouldn't it not have been Mary And maybe Jesus' brothers, I mean, they're related to him. But as the saying goes, God has sons and daughters. He doesn't have granddaughters and grandsons. Listen, you might think that because your parents went to church, that you're set, but you've never trusted in Christ. Listen, what you need to do today is trust Christ. You might think because you attend church or because you give or because of some other thing that you can buy your way or get your way in. Listen, if Jesus' blood relatives don't even get in based on their relation to Jesus, what makes you think that because you put a 20 in the plate, you've secured your place? It doesn't work that way. And maybe there's not somebody here that thinks that way, but maybe there's somebody watching online that thinks that way. You think you watch a YouTube video and a sermon on YouTube that, that covers all your bases. None of that works and none of that matters. What matters is trusting in Christ. So maybe that's what you need to do today for the first time is trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We come to a time where you can respond to what you've heard and, and God has spoken to you through the Word and, and maybe he's, he's assured you. Maybe you've you felt the Spirit assure you, yes, I trust Christ and yes, I know I'm a part of the family. As we respond, thank God for that. Tell Him how much you appreciate it. Tell Him that you're so thankful that He did all of that to bring you into His family. Maybe you need to pray and ask Christ for forgiveness for the first time. Whatever it is you need to do, now is the time to do it. Don't wait till later. Don't, don't put it off because you want to get out of here in, within the next five or ten minutes. There's no more important decision you can make right now than to be assured that you're leaving here as a son and a daughter and a brother and a sister in Christ's true family. I'm going to pray. You're going to have a time to respond in your seat. I'll be down here to pray with you if you need somebody to pray with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great kindness and grace that you have had on us, that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And though we were rebels... You ransomed us. You redeemed us. You rescued us. Not only did you forgive us, not only did you give us a foreign righteousness outside of ourselves, but you did that so that we may know you as Father. God, maybe, maybe we need to ask forgiveness that we've lost the wonder that we can call you Father. Maybe we need to repent of of an apathy and a lack of joy knowing that we've been brought into Christ's true family. Holy Spirit, as you work through the preaching of the Word and as you work in the hearts and minds of your people, God, may we be quick to obey your leading. In Jesus' name we pray. You take a moment.